friends, welcome back. This is Anya with uh, Rescue Radio. I have a special guest from Wasilla, Alaska, Gabe Kidder. Hi, Gabe. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Gabe is here to talk about his adventure in the great outdoors. Uh, but before we jump in, Gabe, can you talk about yourself a little bit? Tell us who you are and um, what you like to do. Yeah, for sure. So uh, my name is Gabe Kidder. I'm 32 years old, born and raised in Alaska in the town I still reside, Wasilla. I've been an outdoorsman since I could walk and and more specifically on snow machines since I could walk. My dad uh, dad got me my first snow machine when I was two years old. It was an Artie Cat Kitty Cat. Oh, wow. and, uh, <laughs> yeah, he actually, uh, a little side note, he, he tied the one ski to a pole in the yard and I did circles around that pole. And uh, <laughs> he thought it was time to let me go on my own. And, and he let me go and I could only turn one way. I almost ran into his truck. So he had to turn turn me around, tie the other ski to the pole and let me do circles for a little while to get, <laughs> get that figured out. But yeah, needless to say, I've been riding snow machines all my life. And, and that's kind of what, what makes this story unbelievable to me if you were to have told me it before it happened. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's really funny. Um, okay, so let's jump right in. Um, tell us what happened. Uh, spring bear hunting was what we were doing that weekend. It wasn't our first weekend of doing it. It's a, it's a very weather dependent thing that we do up here. And, and it, it can be a very short season dependent on the weather. Uh, we had went the weekend before and uh, it was beautiful. We were two and a half hours on the road north of Wasilla in a town called Cantwell. We were just, just shy of Cantwell. The weekend before we had spent some time in a different area and landed in this valley that I ended up getting kind of screwed up in easier from another direction the next weekend. So we showed up there with a plan to go into this valley we'd already been into once, but just from a different direction. It was me and my my partner, Steve. Uh, we showed up to the parking lot actually a little earlier than we expected. So we still had some some time to get into the valley, the base of it at least, and be able to look inside and see what we were up against the next day and uh, and kind of made a game plan for Saturday morning. So we woke up in the morning and normal morning for us we just kind of got up ate some pop tarts and oatmeal real quick drank some coffee and took off and it was probably about i'd say three or four miles to the the entrance to that valley beautiful morning for the fact of uh it's cold during the nighttime which makes the snow hard freezes it at night and during the day it gets so warm that it ends up melting the snow partially and almost slush we call it mashed potatoes and uh, yeah. it makes it almost impassable. If you get down into a spot that you can't get back out of, you're stuck there till the till the next day because you it's too soft and the snow machine won't get out of it. We took off that morning. Like I said, snow was hard. It was great. We worked our way down a pretty steep hill to get into the floor of the valley. In doing so, on our way down, we noticed something on the, it would be, I guess, the west side of the valley. So we went to that spot that we that just looked weird. It didn't look normal. We went over to it, and sure enough, it was a bear den and uh, mm-hmm. a hole in the ground, hole in the snow, topsoil and dirt pulled out of it, where the where the bear had come in and out, in and out. Because they'll they'll typically spend sometimes up to a week or two in and out of the den before they realize that it's warm enough or decide it's warm enough to keep traveling. We we approached the den obviously carefully because we don't know what's inside if there is still a bear inside. But there was there was nothing in inside and all the tracks were pretty old it looked like so 
But needless to say, we, we didn't, you know, it's hard to tell tracks fresh from old when they're baked every day and then frozen at night, they change. And uh, we decided to split up because you can cover more ground and see more that way. Steve took the bottom of the valley, the valley floor, and I stayed on that west side of the valley where the den was originally. How far were you from like the entry point? I think it was probably about three to four miles from where we dropped into the valley. I don't even know if it was that far. It was probably about two miles, I guess. Okay. And uh, so Steve went to the bottom, started working his way into the valley. And I stayed on the left side, the west side of the valley, going down the side of the valley, just keeping our eyes peeled for tracks. And I mean, looking for a bear, there could have been a bear from another den even. And in doing so, Like I said, I'd put 200 miles on the weekend before doing the same exact thing. And I had put 2,000 miles on my snow machine that winter. It wasn't uh, a new thing that I was, wasn't used to or anything like that. But needless to say, I kept going down the west side of the valley. And there were ravines where water has cut little valleys into the sides of that mountain. And I was going in and out of those, up and down. It's, it's all on a side hill. Some of them are 10 feet down. Some of them are 20 to 30 feet down. One of the ravines that when I approached it, I came up to the edge and realized it was all rocks going down. Put the snow machine in reverse, went backwards, pointed the snow machine up the side of the valley and went up the ravine further. And when I started down that ravine, at that point, that's when the rest of the story is kind of put together to the best of what we could figure out from tracks and stuff, because I don't I don't remember it. But it it looks like I started down that into that ravine and noticed that the last six feet, I guess, vertically of the ravine was straight up and down. It was it was windblown in a cornice, I guess, for lack of a better term. There was indications that I had locked the brakes up. The snow machine had slid. I had studs in the track, so it, it would grab good on the ice and stuff, but it didn't. It slid. Everyone that rides snow machines knows that you don't go off of something with your, with your brakes on because it's just going to make you nosedive. So You can tell I gave it gas at the last second and tried to pull the skis up off the ground and the skis didn't come up as much as they needed to. The snow machine hit the the bottom of the ravine and all we can guess because I had my face was cut up was that my face hit the handlebars and it knocked me unconscious. How far down did you go? Do you know like how many feet? I would say it was in the scheme of things as far as snow machining for me is concerned. It was it was small. It was six feet, I would imagine. Um, But it was enough. For, it was enough. Yeah. yeah. And what's uh, ironic is that, like I said, I'd put 2000 miles on that snow machine that winter and worn a helmet for every mile of it, yeah. except this weekend, because the weekend of before course. it was so warm. And the one time, the one time, yeah, we're going slow. We're just hunting. I don't need a helmet. I don't know that it would have helped or not because I wear an open face helmet for the most part, but yeah. uh, I know it wouldn't have hurt. That's for sure. Yeah. From what we can tell, my face hit the handlebars. It knocked me unconscious. The snow machine leveled itself out, continued to coast kind of at an angle down the ravine, but working its way up the other side of the ravine. Oh, were you you on it? Yeah, correct. I was was unconscious. I would imagine slumped over the handlebars or behind the handlebars. It went up the other side of the ravine. It got pointed downhill at probably a 45 degree angle inside that ravine. And when it got up the wall of the other side so far, it couldn't, the momentum stopped. And uh, it was steep enough that the snow machine started to roll. The snow machine that I was riding was a, it's a very heavy snow machine. It's a, it's a super wide track, four stroke, 900. And they weigh somewhere around 800 pounds. 
and I would imagine with all my gear and stuff on it, you know, hunting gear and rifle and everything, it was, it was over 800 pounds from what we can tell there. It's really hard to indicate what happened because the snow is so hard in the morning. I wrecked about 10 o'clock in the morning is what we guessed. So the snow is very hard. There's zero prints left in the snow really where even the snow machine land. From what we could tell, the snow machine rolled once with me still on it. And then I we think the second time it rolled is when I had came off of it and the snow machine track, the side of the track left marks on the back of my coat where it came over and hit me in the back, but folded me in half at the same time. So my head was forced to my right foot and uh, snow machine weight is uh, is what broke the vertebrae. You were separated from your friend, so he had no idea what happened. That's correct. Yeah, the whole time this thing's going on, Steve's still down on the valley floor. He can't see me. It's a big enough valley that I'm quite a ways, probably a half a mile away from him up on the side of the mountain. He has no idea what's going on. We had made a plan to meet, you know, kind of an unsaid plan where the valley bottlenecked at the end and uh, we would have naturally met there. Uh, the snow machine continued to roll, I think, one more time after it went over the top of me. And I was still unconscious at the time. I didn't, I didn't, I don't remember any of it. I actually woke up uh, face down in the snow. Like, like I said, really hard, like concrete snow. I woke up my face in the belly, belly down, face in the snow. I kind of came to obviously fuzzy and started looking at the snow where my face was and there was blood all over it. And I couldn't, at that point, I knew something was going on and I couldn't figure out what happened, but I'd went to roll over or get up and I couldn't. It, it, it immediately the adrenaline soaked in and I started getting hot I, and it took me probably what felt like an eternity to get rolled over onto my back, start trying, attempting to strip my coat off. I got my coat unzipped and uh, I I don't believe, I, tried, I remember trying to get my arms out of the sleeves and I couldn't. I laid there for quite a while. It was silent, no noise anywhere. We're, my hunting partner was off continuing on his way in hopes that he would meet me eventually and never did. So that's the point in which he turned around, followed his own tracks back mm. to the point in which we left each other. He then got on my snow machine tracks and started following them. When he came up to the valley wall that I went, the, the ravine, I guess, that I went down, he had he kind of put everything together. There was snow machine parts all over the place that had broken to pieces and I was laying in the snow. He had to go down the valley wall quite a ways and get inside of that ravine in a safer place, obviously, and, and come up to me. And that's when he started asking questions like what happened. And I didn't know he, he started asking me what day it was. I had the wrong, I was picking wrong days, wrong months. I didn't, I knew we were bear hunting. I couldn't put anything together. One of the lessons I learned through the whole thing was to carry that in reach on your person. I more or less mm. bought that thing or my wife bought it for me for convenience, just to be able to check in with people not thinking that I would actually utilize the SOS portion of it, but it was in my snow machine on my handlebars, which was 20 feet away from me and I couldn't walk. So if it wasn't for Steve being there and showing up, I don't know that I would have been able to get to the snow machine and, and initiate the SOS. We, he, like I said, he went through a series of questions. I wasn't answering them correctly. And he asked me, do you want me to use your inReach to SOS? And I said, let's, let's try to get me out of here first. I don't know what's wrong, but, but let's try a few things before we do it. Against Steve's better judgment, I, I told him, I said, let's, let's see if we can get my butt on a shovel, the blade of the shovel, 
and attach the handle of the shovel to the back of the snow machine. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if we can get me out of here. It was, I couldn't even get the blade of the shovel underneath the back, underneath my butt. The, the pain was so bad. <laughs> I should not be laughing, but this is, <laughs> this is really funny. No, it, it's funny now. It's funny now. And yeah. Steve, Steve knew he was like, man, you're, yeah. you're really messed up. This is a bad <laughs> idea. I'm pretty hard headed. It didn't take too many attempts at that before he finally said, okay, Gabe, I don't care what you say. We're, we're going to try, try getting some help out here. So at that point, Steve started to utilize my inReach. He has, he had an older version of the Delorum. Uh, mine was an inReach mini. Uh, he initiated that SOS. It was pretty quick. It was almost instant that emergency services started communicating with us through text message. At that point, they dispatched a trooper helicopter, Alaska state trooper helicopter to see if they could assist in the rescue. I don't know exactly on timelines, but it was probably, I would say two hours before mm. the state troopers flew over. And at that point we, we thought we were good. Like the troopers are going to come. That's, us. that's pretty quick. Usually it takes longer than two hours. So that was pretty good response time, believe- but that wasn't it, right? <laughs> no. And I, I believe the Cantwell trooper was, was out of the town, town of Cantwell, which is probably, I don't 30 miles or something in a straight line. But yeah, he flew over a couple times. And and like I said, there was a sense of relief between the two of us until he continued to do his circles and then leave. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It it wasn't a good feeling. The helicopter sound got more and more faint and and Steve started to get pretty frustrated. And I, I was getting discouraged. There was no comfortable position that I could lay in. The only thing that helped is getting my knees bent and Steve kind of holding my legs. I was baking in the sun because it was super hot and then adrenaline on top of it starting to wear off and I'm hurting. The emergency services contacted us again and said, Hey, a uh, trooper flew over, said that, that they can't help with where you're at. They can't land close enough. Uh, and they've, we're going to patch you through to life med, which is an emergency service helicopter that we have here in Alaska that will fly nearly anywhere in the state. I believe they have helicopters, planes, regular ambulances. And that was when they patched us through to LifeMed. All in all, by the time the LifeMed helicopter reached us, I believe it was close to four hours that Mm -hmm. I'd been there since the time of the accident. It took, and I I guess I should know, it took Steve 45 minutes to find me from the time I crashed. Yeah, we had, he had put on some miles to that bottleneck pinch point that we had kind of agreed to meet at and then he had to backtrack and did it very carefully to not miss where I was. And, um, I can't imagine laying there for 45 minutes not knowing if anybody's going to find me. That must have been horrible. Right. And I think, honestly, in that 45 minutes time, it didn't feel like that long because I was still kind of coming back to. I was coming back to consciousness. I think I was kind of going in and out because it's it's all very like still pictures. There's no solid memory of the whole thing. When the Life Med helicopter showed up, they did the same thing the troopers did. They did a couple circles, kind of surveying the area and where to land. Steve had already, at that point, worked his way down the mountain, used the snow machine to pack down a good spot because the snow was starting to get soft. Pack down a good spot for the helicopter to land, what he thought would be a good spot. Life Med set down probably 200 yards down the mountain from me. And when they landed and shut the helicopter down, that was definitely a sigh of relief for me. It was like, well, there's finally somebody here that knows what they're doing. <laughs> uh, so they worked their way up. There was a pilot and uh, two flight medics that worked their way up with, um, I don't know what they call it, but it's it's more or less a 
flexible gurney made out of rubber. They got up there to me, asked a bunch of questions, blood pressure, all this stuff. I uh, looked at the laceration of my head and made sure it wasn't too bad and started administering some pain medication, which was much appreciated. A relief, um, yeah. A relief and almost a necessity just to get me on that gurney and start the journey 200 yards back down to the helicopter. It Over was, the snow? Yeah. And it was warm enough that day that they were post-holing the whole time, just up to their hips. And they, they shoved me in the helicopter and, and got me out. And by the time that pain medication set in, it's all kind of a blur. I remember very little of the flight out. And then it's all a blank till I get to the hospital in Matsu Regional in Wasilla. What injuries did you sustain? Um, so I fractured, I broke L1. The way that it broke is the vertebrae below it and the vertebrae above it pinched it when I was bent in half and it popped the front mm -hmm. third of that vertebrae off. A torn psoas muscle didn't tear completely off, but it tore to where it took a long time to heal and then a concussion. The recovery time wasn't as bad as you would expect, I guess, when you hear somebody broke their back. I did I did really well in that process, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't uh, follow through with the shovel plan, evacuation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think things would have ended up broke much worse. Wow, you're very, very lucky considering... 800 pounds machine rolling over you. Have you been back since then? So yeah, I I uh, I went back the next year, not to that specific location, but went to uh, another mountain range here close to town. Mm -hmm. Against my my wife's wishes, I went by myself and and uh, kind of redeemed myself for for the trip before you know. So let's talk about let's talk about lessons learned because I'm there's always something that you could learn. Like you already mentioned, you would keep inReach on your person versus somewhere in a backpack or on a machine. Anything else that you wish you did better or you think that you guys did well? Things that I didn't think were that important or were more of a convenience like the inReach are very important and can be. It's, when you, it's, it's the things that you don't expect to need that you end up needing the most. I think a helmet was another one. I think uh, things things could have been better if I would have had a helmet on. And being complacent. I've ridden snow machines all my life. And uh, when I was younger, did all kinds of stupid things and crazy things. And getting this snow machine that I have now and, and then, I wouldn't expect any injuries. There's no reason for them. It's a slower machine. It's It's more of a utility machine, but it happens. Some things that we did really well. Steve was a big part of it. He kept my head screwed on through a lot of it. Having a, a good solid person that in uh, in a moment of chaos, kind of like that, he keeps his head screwed on and and keeps me focused on what's important and and was just there to help. He was definitely a big uh, big asset to me getting out of there safely. And another thing that I think you guys did really well is having a plan. Like you knew where you're gonna meet, what time, so he knew that he needs to turn back and look for you when you weren't there. Yeah, exactly. Having a and just if nothing else, being aware of where each other is at all times. Mm -hmm. We're we're good at that because a lot of times you can't see each other, but you know that if a person went this way in the mountains, uh, there's only one or two ways out and, and to know when they're going to be out. And just spending a lot of time with someone before you put yourself in those dangerous positions is yeah. very advantageous. So speaking about inReach, how hard is it to use one? That's another thing is you don't get to practice your SOSs, right? You don't, you don't get to try it and make sure it works. 
It was very simple. I think the InReach Mini is a great tool for the simple fact that it is small. It's mini. But make sure your cell phone is charged. And if you don't have a way to charge it, you better make sure it's charged. Because that is what we utilized to send the messages to the emergency services. And there's actually more communication with those guys than I would have guessed. Because they're trying to get somewhat of an estimate of what they're coming into too. You know, they got to know what to bring and and how to be prepared for it. So it was very easy to use. It's no, it's really no different than messaging, text messaging a, a friend or whatever on your, on your normal cell phone. And it doesn't, uh, you did the monthly or annual subscription. It doesn't cost that much. No, I do the, uh, the annual subscription. Garmin makes it really easy to increase your amount of text messages. So when I, um, I spend a lot of time out in September, August and September. And so I can increase the amount of messages that I can utilize for those two months. It's $14 a month, I think, $14 or $15 a month. On the subject of life-saving costs, LifeMed was another huge one. That's $49 a year. So long as you have that subscription, it's cheap, very cheap in the scheme of things. And you're here alive that, to tell this. Yes, and not and not bankrupt because I think that flight was somewhere around eighty or ninety thousand dollars. Ouch! Yeah. So another thing that's that was amazing on Garmin's side of things was in your inReach settings, you can have emergency contacts. I had listed in my emergency contacts my wife and my dad, and Garmin will when you SOS will reach out to those folks that you have put in your contact list, and they did. They reached out to my wife and um, and said, "Hey, we have an SOS from your husband." We don't know necessarily what happened yet. We're just, we're still collecting information, but we want you to be aware of it. And then his dad is on the contact list. Do we need to contact him or can you, can you do that? And my wife obviously was able to call my dad and make him well aware of it. They, my parents still live here in Wasilla as well. And my wife was here in town and they both uh, met me at the hospital. It was a little bit rough for her through the process because it was four hours of unknown and she assumed the worst and that and that there was some kind of bear attack or, or something like that. And originally thought because it was my SOS and my inReach device that it was Steve that got hurt. It was nice that they warned her or that, you know, communicated that with her. And, and that's as good as they can do, really, because they didn't know much else either. So Gabe, every episode, we do a trivia question, and I'm hoping you have one for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of on the subject of snow machining as well. So there is a, a race in Alaska. It is the world's longest snow machine race, and it's called the Iron Dog. And the question is, how long is that race in miles? Awesome. So if you know the answer, please email us at rescueradio but by PMR at gmail.com. It's rescueradio by PMR at gmail.com. And you can um, win some PMR swag. And here's last month's trivia question. After you've called 911 and you're lost, what is the very first thing you should do? And the answer is, you should stay put and protect yourself from the environment. And the lucky winner is Alex Clark. Congratulations, Alex. You'll be hearing from us. Thank you so much for joining me today. What a story. I'm glad you made it out okay. And uh, those are really good tips that you're giving out. Having an inReach or some kind of a um, device that will help you 
ask for help is crucial. And we always think, at least I, I never think it's going to happen to me. You know, it's always to somebody else that's going to happen. So it's it's well worth the money. Yeah, um, for sure. That's, that was always my outlook on it too, was that I'll, I'll never use this SOS portion of this device. It's only going to be for messaging and keeping in t- touch with my wife and parents and stuff. But very fortunate I had it. Well, thank you, Gabe. Um, stay safe out there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that is all I have for you today. Huge thanks to our editor, Mari Feher, for making us sound good. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram under Portland Mountain Rescue. You can also check us out at pmru.org. Until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.